So we turn to the prophet Amos, chapter 7. Reading the whole of that chapter, God's holy and inspired word given to us, his people, give your attention to the reading of it, Amos, chapter 7. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowing. And when he had finished eating the grass, when they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall, built with a plumb line, and with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore for figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people, people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die In an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. So we do not like to be told no. The first time we firmly hear this as a toddler from either mom or dad, it often makes us cry. We stick out our bottom lip and we fuss at being told no. And yet we never completely outgrow this. Teenagers devise all sorts of ways to get around no. 
We will spend hours complaining to customer service for being denied, and credit cards have record profits because people refuse to tell themselves no. Indeed, this aversion to negatives basically runs our economy. The customer is always right, never take no for an answer, and give us a thousand choices to say yes to. Of course, life is full of no's, and a chief part of maturity and godliness is accepting and submitting to the many denials that life gives us, and the no's that we need to administer to ourselves. Though some refusals still scare us, particularly in prayer, the Lord turning down our petitions, this sends a chill down our spines. Surely not. God answers all our prayers. Didn't Jesus say, ask and it will be given unto you? Well, yes, but as it is with Scripture, there is much more to the story than this, some of which is given to us here by Amos. So the sun is up and it's a new day for some ministry. The Lord has some more work for Amos to do, though this time the Lord alters his delivery system. Now, typically, God speaks to his prophets from his throne in heaven, and then they turn around to preach it to the people, uh, what God spoke to them. But here, the audible gets more visual. The Lord doesn't have a lecture for Amos, but a moving picture In fact, there are three visions here that God reveals to Amos, one after another. And each vision is kind of like a movie trailer that foreshadows what the Lord is going to do to Israel. Yahweh is showing Amos, and in turn his people, the future. And the first vision is in verses 1 through 3. Here on a heavenly plain, the Lord shows, and behold, Amos sees the Lord fashioning locusts. With God's creative power working in fast-forward speed, the prophet watches the grasshoppers hatch and mature through their various stages to become adults in a matter of seconds. And this swarm of locusts gets their driver's license at the worst possible time. Note it says it's when the latter growth has sprouted. Now, this refers to the vegetable crop freshly out of the ground, which is the worst possible time for a visit from the grasshoppers. In Israel, the vegetable crop came up around mid-April, which is right when the grain crop, both the barley and the wheat, was ready to harvest. Likewise, the king just took his mowing, which refers to some sort of royal tax. So the grain is mature in the field, the vegetables have freshly sprouted, and the king took his bite. If the locusts strike now, it's going to be a total loss. For the vegetables and the grain are the two main crops to feed Israel and their animals for the rest of the year. And in this vision, Amos watches the locusts hit the buffet. Before then, the land is lush like Eden, but after the locusts, it's Death Valley, bare, empty, starving. If this vision becomes a reality, the whole people will wither from starvation and perish with hollow bellies. What a terrible way to go. And so Amos speaks up. This Judean is moved to pity 
and he intercedes. He prays for the Lord to forgive. Please pardon, O Lord, for Israel will not survive this plague. Israel's too little, too fragile to endure this tidal wave of grasshoppers. Now, as you know, one of the jobs of the prophet was to intercede for the people. They stood in the gap between the people and God's wrath to sue for mercy and grace. And so Moses mediates. He cannot bear to see his brethren perish like shriveled raisins. And so he begs the Lord to pardon. Open your gates of forgiveness. And the Lord is moved. He hears Amos' petition, and the Lord relents. He revokes the punishment. He stays the execution. It shall not happen. No locust for Israel. What a wonderful show of intercession and mercy. And yet Amos' prayer is not fully answered. He filed the petition for forgiveness, and God delivered a punishment revocation, which is not the same thing. Forgiveness erases the sin so that judgment becomes moot. Relenting, though, only stops the punishment and leaves the sinner in his guilt. Revoking the death sentence saves the life of Israel temporarily, but without pardon, her rap sheet is still yet stained with crimes and guilt. This is very much a limited show of mercy. And yet it's still noteworthy since Israel had not evidenced any repentance. Void of repentance, Amos' intercession only reaches so far. But after this first vision, the Lord shows his prophet another one. Amos now gazes upon the Lord, releasing a judgment by fire. And this is no ordinary fire, as it licks up the entirety of the great deep. Now, the deep included not only the sea, but also the vast body of water under the earth, as the ancient Israelites understood it. And the deep was, uh, for them, the source of every spring, river, and well. Without the deep, every source of water dies. And as the deep is evaporated, the land is devoured. This portrays a hundred percent drought. Every last drop of water is gone. In three three days' time, dehydration claims everyone. The only thing that grows on this parched land is the number of skeletons. Again, the terror of such judgment is overwhelming, and so Amos springs up for mercy. Please cease, Lord, stay your hand. Do not unleash the fire. And the Lord relents. He revokes the punishment and commutes the death sentence. This is another wonderful triumph of mercy over judgment. By prophetic intercession, the Lord does not deal with Israel as her sins deserve. The curse that she merited is not dished out upon her. Though what Amos achieves still does not attain forgiveness. Atonement was not one for the people, only a cessation of execution. Good, but not the best. And so there is another vision. Now, this third movie starts in verse 7, but it's a bit of a head-scratcher. 
For this word for plumb line, we don't really know what it means. Now, a plumb line is like a tape measure and a level all in one, but this translation is more of a guess. This word could actually mean tin, probably the best option, or maybe even lead. We're not sure. But whatever it means, how it's functioning in the vision is also obscure, and even for Amos. Thus, Amos is unsure of the significance of what he sees. And so the Lord has to interrupt the visuals. But even after the Lord asks him, the result is kind of the only thing clear. Thus, whatever the symbolism is of this plumb line, the effect is the Lord will no longer, never again, pass by them. Which means, no more relenting. The Lord said no to forgiveness twice, and now he says no to passing over the judgment. The time for passing, or the time has passed for him to relent from punishment for revoking the sentence. The sun is set on the day of mercy. The window is closed for intercession. Amos can no longer mediate for the people. The Lord now has shut Amos down with a solid no. In the first two visions, the Lord said no and yes. No to forgiveness, yes to relenting. Though now, he issues a double negative. No pardon, no revocation. The die is cast, the verdict is final, and there's no right to appeal. Judgment without mercy is coming, and it will devastate both cult and kingdom. Note he says, ruin will fall upon all the shrines of Israel, and disaster will lay waste to her sanctuaries. Many are the cult sites of Israel. Some honor idols, others invoke the name of the Lord but they're all apostate and unlawful. The profane worship and piety of Israel shall then be no more. But the judgment also targets the kingdom. Yahweh will raise the sword against the house of Jeroboam. Yet this line is deliberately ambiguous. It has several ways in which to read it or understand it. For one, there are two Jeroboams in Israel's history. Now, the current king is Jeroboam II, and house can refer either to a king's dynasty or to the kingdom itself. So the Lord could be saying here, I will cut off the dynasty of Jeroboam II, or I will destroy the kingdom of Jeroboam II. Now, these are similar, but not the same. However, there's another Jeroboam in Israel's history. This was Jeroboam I, who was the first king of the northern kingdom. He was the founder of northern Israel, and he is the one who made the golden calves at Bethel and Dan, Bethel where Amos is preaching. Jeroboam I authored those many shrines within Israel. Thus a sword against the kingdom of Jeroboam I spells the entire end of Israel as a state. But... Which one does the Lord intend? Is this judgment on the current king, Jeroboam II? Or does this condemn the northern kingdom as a whole? Well, we cannot tell at this point. We're unsure. It could be read both ways. Nevertheless, there's someone in the audience of Amos, 
and he thinks he knows the right way to hear it. The local priest of Bethel, Amaziah, now confronts Amos with his preaching. This gives us a background and a setting for Amos' ministry. Basically, Amos was preaching his three night visions at the temple in Bethel, and he was addressing all the worshipers who brought offerings to the golden calf. But then there was a complaint. It always starts with a complaint. And so it goes to the man in charge to intervene and deal with this rogue preacher. Amaziah is priest number one. Now, we don't know anything else about him, but Amaziah is the man in charge. And his first priority is to tattletale. He informs Jeroboam II about Amos' message. This means Amaziah understands that the house of Jeroboam as being against the dynasty of the present monarch. Thus, in his letter, Amaziah charges Amos with conspiracy against Jeroboam II. Note he makes it personal. Amos is guilty of treason against you, O Jeroboam II. Amaziah reads Amos's preaching as both political and personal rebellion against King Jeroboam II. And this charge is quite serious. For political coups have gone hand in hand with prophetic sermons in the history of Israel. In fact, rebels have assassinated the king and taken the throne at least six times in Israel's history, and nearly all of them were fueled by a prophet. In fact, Jeroboam II's great-grandfather, Jehu, overthrew the previous king in a coup at the preaching of Elisha. A prophetic conspiracy to assassinate a king? This is old hat in Israel and a very present danger. And so you can guarantee that Jeroboam will be quick to squash it. And yet, in his letter to the king, Amaziah repeats Amos's message incorrectly. He first quotes Amos as saying, Israel will go into exile. Now, this is an accurate quote. But he also cites Amos, Jeroboam will die by the sword. But Amos didn't say this. He said the sword was against the house of Jeroboam. This is aimed at the dynasty or the kingdom of either first or second, and not at Jeroboam II personally. Besides, Amos could mean Jeroboam I and not Jeroboam II. In fact, as history unfolds, Jeroboam II does not die by the sword. He is not overthrown by a bloody coup. Now, his son will be, but not him. Therefore, Amaziah twists the word of God from Amos. He ever so slightly misinterprets the word of God to make it more politically charged, more personal against Jeroboam II, and so to put Amos in that much more danger. The ways of the evil one, then, have not changed. The world and the apostate church love to misrepresent the truth of God's word in order to silence the true preaching of the word. Thus, even before Amos or Amaziah hears back from the king, he imposes a penalty on Amos. Note he bans Amos from ever preaching at Bethel again. 
Amaziah censors the true prophet. He issues a gag order and withdraws Amos's preaching permit. Amaziah outlaws the word of God and he banishes the Lord's prophet. This is one of the evil one's most effective weapons. Mute the word and deport the preachers. And if you drive away the, the messenger, then you can kill the message and without the word of God, the people are left in the dark. Without the truth of God's word, the people happily remain in their lives. Thus Amaziah expels Amos and he smothers preaching. For as he says, this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. That means this is the official cult of the political state. Therefore, Amos has no jurisdiction here. No one can preach at Bethel without the permit of the king. Of course, to evict the Lord's prophet is to exclude the Lord. Amaziah is saying that the Lord has no jurisdiction here or standing in Bethel. And to drive away the one sent is to reject the sender. It doesn't get much more bald-faced than this. Thus, it's time for Amos to deliver his no. God told Amos no to no more mercy, and now Amos tells Amaziah no to being silent. As he says, I am no prophet, nor the son of a prophet. Now, this counters when Amaziah told Amos to eat his bread in Judah. To eat your bread, this means to make a living by prophesying. Amaziah mistakes Amos Amos then as a prophet for hire. He thinks that Amos was just paid by the politicians of Judah to come curse Israel. He's merely a political operative. He's paid for. Now, being paid to prophesy is a false prophet thing in the Old Testament, which, of course, is all they have in Bethel. Thus, Amaziah just assumes that Amos is preaching for the money. Hence, Amos counters that he isn't a professional prophet. This is not how he gets paid. No, Amos is a herdsman. He's a dresser of figs. He works in agriculture. Instead, the Lord took him from behind the flock and ordered him to preach in Israel. Thus, Amos didn't choose this job. But God chose it for him. Amos isn't in it for a paycheck, but he's acting out of pure obedience. In this, Amos is declaring that he must obey God over man. He cannot disobey the Lord's call to preach. Thus, Amos acts not by his will, but according to the will of Yahweh. Amos points away from himself. This is not about him. It's about carrying out the command of the Lord to preach. Therefore, Amos has from God one more personal word for Amaziah Amaziah himself. Amaziah labored to muzzle God's word, and so now the word will silence him. The Lord unleashes a personal judgment upon Amaziah for outlawing and censoring the prophetic word. For becoming an enemy of the word, Amaziah's kids will die, his land will be plundered, 
His wife will be left to survive by a life of prostitution, and Amaziah will die in an impure land, which is a foreign land, far from the promised land. To stand against the word as a foe results in being rolled over by the word. Man cannot stop God's truth, and death comes to those who try. And on top of this, Israel will still go into exile. Amaziah's attempt to silence Amos changed nothing. The Lord has spoken, and so it will be. Thus, from this little drama at Bethel, between the visions and Amaziah's opposition, we see how much greater is the new covenant in which we reside. To begin with, Amos's intercession is impressive. He imitates and follows the example of Moses to step in front of God's wrath and to beg for mercy for a stubborn people. Israel didn't ask Amos for Amos to mediate. They didn't repent. They didn't show any humble, contrite spirit. And yet out of love for a people who did not love him, Amos prayed to save them. He sought atonement and pardon for sinners who didn't deserve it. And yet Amos's intercession didn't get very far. He was denied forgiveness twice. He obtained a stay of execution twice, but in the end, he got a double no from God. No pardon and no more relenting from wrath. Amos couldn't procure the forgiveness and secure reconciliation. Thus, as a greater prophet, Jesus matched Amos and then surpassed him. Jesus stood in the gap. He interceded for a people who didn't ask for it. But where Amos fell short, Jesus succeeded. And how? Because Jesus supplied the atonement for the people with his own life. Jesus didn't just pray for forgiveness, but he paid for it with his obedient blood. Yes, Jesus won a yes for our salvation, and he did by suffering a no from God for us. In the garden, Jesus asked for the cup to pass. But as the Father told him no, and Jesus submitted to this no, he merited our everlasting pardon and our perfect reconciliation. Amos couldn't die for Israel. Yet as the righteous priest and the loving prophet and the pure sacrifice, Jesus could, and he did die for you. And as Christ provided atonement for us, he did so while we were yet lost in unrepentance. We were not seeking God or asking for repentance, but Jesus died to win us to the Father while we were yet enemies. Thus, this is a second way that Jesus' ministry far exceeds that of Amos. As the resurrected one, Jesus sent forth his word empowered by the Spirit who actually makes us new and makes us repentant. God's mercy comes to the humble and contrite, but we cannot believe or repent in our own strength. But Christ's Spirit-filled gospel actually changes our hearts. The word makes us alive. 
The Spirit works faith and humility and repentance in us. The better and more powerful word of Christ flowing from the cross recreates us, gives us a new birth unto faith, to confess, and to seek God. This, then, is why Paul can say, in Christ, God only says yes to you. All the promises of our Heavenly Father are yes and amen to you who are in Christ. The Father does not tell you no in his Son. Though Paul carefully founds this yes only in God's promises in Jesus. This is not an indiscriminate yes, but a yes only where God has promised. And the Father has not promised us everything. God didn't promise us wealth or health or ease or long life or the other creaturely comforts that we can covet at times. Rather, the Father has promised us hardship, suffering a cruciformed life, but the easy life is not a promise from God. So what has the Father promised? Well, he swore to us all that really matters. In Jesus, we are promised everlasting forgiveness, eternal love as his children, and life forever in Zion. Jesus gives us his word that he will not leave us or lose us. The gospel ensures us that the heavenly blessings of a great salvation and an imperishable communion with God are firm. Jesus may not promise us tomorrow, but he has promised us eternity with him, which is yes for you. And having been saved in Christ by the word, having yes to all of God's promises in Jesus, we then are equipped with the same power of Christ. For Jesus gives us his gospel, which is the power of God to save sinners. Being saved by the word, having this word in our mouths, this gives us the boldness to say no when being censored. When the world wants to silence us, when enemies seek to outlaw and banish the gospel and its preachers, we have the courage with Amos To say no. We can declare in joy that it's better to obey God rather than man. The yes of the gospel is a no to all who would attempt to mute the gospel. Thus let us remain committed to the power of God to work faith in us and to preserve us in the faith. May we never be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, and may our gospel testimony bring many saints to glory. For now is the day of yes and amen in Christ. But when that final day of judgment comes, then the time for pardon will have passed. But until then, praise the Lord for the better intercession of Jesus Christ. Blessed be Christ for his powerful word of the gospel and for the spirit that makes the gospel effectual. And then may we live boldly in the word so that all the glory might be to our God 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.